안녕하십니까, 여러분. Hello, friends. My name is Kurt Esslinger. I work with the National Council of Churches in Korea, and you're listening to The Leftscape, the shape of progressive conversation in America. Hi, I'm Wendy Sheridan, and you are listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. And hi, I'm Robin Renee. Welcome to episode 140. In today's show, Robin talks with Kurt Esslinger on his mission to foster peace between North and South Korea, the war that never really ended. He has some perspectives on it that you may never have heard. Before that, we go into the blanket fort to talk about coming out. And you know the drill. You can always catch us on a new episode every other Wednesday. And please subscribe to the Leftscape show on our website, leftscape.com. Or find us wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're on our site, don't forget to sign up for the newsletter, The Leftscape Lookout. And we are on social media at Leftscape on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, and your reviews really do help us out. So thank you. Yes, and please consider supporting us on Patreon. When you join us at any level, starting at just $1 a month, you get access to our exclusive segment, We Should Be Recording This. And if you're able, please, you know, up that contribution if you like and receive some other gifts and opportunities. Our most recent discussion was on the Popular Slut Club, was the name of the episode. and. Yes. The- And it'll be up by the time this show drops, I promise. I know I'm late. (laughs) And there's a lot of TMI in this episode. I don't know if I recommend it. No, no, I do. I do recommend it. You will will have fun. Definitely adult content in there. Yes. (laughs) And happy Beltane. It's Beltane today. It's May 1st. I think it's the most sexual holiday of the wheel of the year for pagans. (laughs) I don't know. Well, happy Beltane. We're recording this on May 1st, and in our tradition, we celebrate Beltane at this time of year. Beltane is in neo-pagan traditions, and there's a, you know, an older Celtic tradition that really is, probably has many more centuries behind it. Yes. So I don't speak to those practices exactly, but we celebrate sort of the fullness of spring, the the fertility of the earth, love, you know, it's a, it's a time, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a time for love for sure. And it is said that making love in the fields was a traditional way of sort of imparting fertility to the land or something like that. So, yes. and who knows like, how, how, what, what's that? Sym- sympathetic magic. Yes. Yes. And, and an awesome way to, you know, celebrate the warm weather, regardless of your beliefs, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so welcome to this season which i'm always happy when it's getting warmer out anyway yes. so just wanted to give a shout out to vince in chicago uh thank you very much for the nice message saying that you dig our show and especially our most recent episode so um it's always good to hear from folks thank you let's do our random facts and yes, let's move on and uh, all right all right random facts okay my fact for today 
is Captain Crunch's full name is Horatio Magellan Crunch. <laughs> I love this fact. <laughs> this cracks me up. He was named after the famous explorer Ferdinand Magellan. His ship is also called the SS Guppy. And I have a very geeky fact that in Futurama, Captain Crunch had been promoted to Admiral on the, <laughs> the cereal boxes. <laughs> and I think, I also think they had Archduke Chocula, but I'm not, I don't, don't quote me on that. I'm not positive, but Admiral Crunch was definitely, Fry was eating a bowl of Admiral Crunch at one point in one of the episodes. So <laughs> I, I want that to be real. That would be really <laughs> great. <laughs> I support that promotion. Um, so speaking of weird leaders <laughs> and weird titles, the former president of Turkmenistan, and this is a this is a Wendy style name that I'm gonna not I'm gonna be challenged by, Berdimu Hamadou. Yes. Wow. Berdimu uh, Anyway, has been he's been a DJ for years. Or I don't know if he currently is, but he at, at the time of this he's been a DJ. And he also created a gilded statue of himself on horseback mounted on a white marble cliff. He's an interesting character. We got this. Thank you, Plady Lady, for this this fact. (laughs) He is still in the government somewhere. He's not the president currently. But this fact is enumerated in an article called In the Weird Opulent World of Turkmenistan's Dentist DJ Dictator, (laughs) which is just (laughs) interesting. Yeah. There's a lot going on there. That's an interesting combination of jobs. Yes. And and the alliteration, too. Yes. And I guess now it's time for all the news that we can handle. Yes. Well, in addition to Beltane, it is also we're recording this on International Workers Day, May 1st. And... May know back in April, President Emmanuel Macron of France enacted a controversial new set of reforms that raises the retirement age in France from 62 to 64. So, as you can imagine, upping the retirement age is not a popular thing. So, there's been a lot of protests going on, you know, before and during this this act has been happening. So today, on May 1st, WION is live streaming. Now, this is a news outlet based in India, but Mm. they really do world news and they try to be as non-biased, just sort of showing what's happening kind of of thing. But anyway, they're live streaming now as people are gathering for the traditional May Day Labor March in Paris. So in a way, this is a, this may have already happened. I don't know what's going to happen with this, but it's definitely sort of rekindling the protests around this issue. So it'll be be interesting yeah. to see well i remember the i remember seeing news pieces a couple of weeks ago probably when macron actually started or to even started talking about it where the french people were losing basically losing their shit like and i'll tell you that's a country that knows how to protest yes that's what i was thinking <laughs> they do it well yeah i kind of i kind of wish we would do that again here for some things that are happening, not in our state, but elsewhere. And some of the things that are happening in our state too. I know, I know they're, they're trying to, there's school districts where 
people are trying to get librarians to pull books and stuff. But anyway, yeah. anyway. Yeah. So and, I'm curious to see yeah. if, if the protests will make any effective change in this decision, if it will cha you know, change the way it's implemented or anything like that. Because right now it's going to be upping the age by three months every year, I guess, yeah, until so it gets to 64 or something like that. Yeah, they're taking a page from the United States because that's how we that's how we did it. That's how we moved 65 to 67. Right. And, you know, some jobs you can really do until you're that old and some jobs you really can't. You know, a lot of physical labor jobs. I don't even know how you even managed to do it in your six into your 60s at all. So yeah. <sighs> anyway, I have a piece. Uh, the fighting in Sudan is getting worse. It's to the point where the United Kingdom has basically told any British citizens to get the fuck out. And they're they had a they were running an extra airlift plane out of there yesterday on Sunday. And they were calling for the complete evacuation of United Kingdom citizens and also foreign doctors who have active UK visas. They will airlift them out. And so that's still going on. I think this is this is actually this is a civil war here that's happening in Sudan. There's two factions that are fighting for control over the country and it's getting bad or it's gotten bad. It's bad now. Mm. And we don't hear a whole lot about it. So no. I'm glad for your yeah. know, reading of The Guardian and yeah, well, it, in some other news sources I mean, that we don't really hear from. It, yeah, and it's getting to the point where it was, I think last week I actually was in my car and I could listen to the BBC report that they get on uh, the NPR radio station. And they were talking about Sudan quite a bit, about the different factions that are fighting. And uh, one of the factions is the guy who was the current dictator and that's a mil they're all it's two military groups that are fighting for power and control of that country and it's just getting worse and worse so that's what's happening in that part of africa i wish there was something to say or do about it and like, thank you for yeah, keeping us I, aware. I That's don't the know main thing. what to say or do, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it kind of sucks, but I mean, if they if they're really if they're really moving like all the NGOs out of there because it's getting too dangerous, it's like there's not a lot we can do until I guess things settle down and and non-Sudanese can come back in to help people. Yeah. So on <laughs> in uh, U.S. news, which is. This has just been ubiquitous in the news, but I think it's worth mentioning that Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon both got canned a week ago today as we record. And, you know, very different situations that happened weirdly simultaneously. And Tucker Carlson was let go after the settlement with Dominion, what is it, Do Dominion Voting Right. What's the name of the company? Do Dominion, Dominion Voting, Voting Systems. Systems. Yes. 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 Thank you. That Fox News settled with them and paid them seven eight hundred seven point five million dollars. Yes, and Tucker being one of the sort of biggest proponents of a lot of the election lies, I think, was you know one of the one of the liabilities that helped to bring that on. So I mean, 
for there's a lot of different theories about like all of the reasons, like some of his like very threatening texts and reveal. Well, the texts that were revealed in, during the case showed yeah. the you know people <laughs> who what he thought of a lot of people there for sure. You know, there's a lot of reasons, I guess, but he's out, which, you know, I think the less people hear from him, the better. Who knows well, what he's going to do next? He did He did make some very weird video. I heard there Go that ahead. he's going to Newsmax. Okay. That's that might be I the heard. latest news. That's... Yeah. Which isn't great, but I don't think Newsmax, that isn't Newsmax Trump's thing or is it somebody else's? It's not Trump's thing, but it's it's farther to the right of Fox, which, which is, is when so what so when they start. It's hard when the, to even conceive of farther to the right than Fox, unless it's like Nazi News Channel, all Nazis <laughs> all the time, you oh, know. I, <laughs> exactly, but yeah, no, that was one of the things that started happening. Like Fox was losing viewership to Newsmax because when they when their news side of the company started to talk about the truth of the election and people started leaving and going to like the farther right type. Oh my God. You know, outlet. So yeah, no, he, he, he made this weird video, like after he was fired saying something like, uh, well, there aren't many places in the, there aren't many places in the world where people are saying true things, but I, you know, I say true things or something like that. And <laughs> we're like, um, yeah, not, not exactly. But he said, see you soon. So maybe that's what happened. Maybe he you know, he was alluding to the fact that he was going yeah. to Newsmax. So. Well, I think I think one of the articles I read when they fired him, they listed all of the other places he's been fired from. And it's pretty much every, every other place. news <laughs> channel that there is. So I think Luz Newsmax, which I just almost called Newsmax, which I think that's what I'm calling it now. <laughs> I like it. So Newsmax is, is like his last, last hope until he gets his own youtube channel which youtube then google will like dump him off of there once he gets too egregious so right, right. so he's just yeah. gonna have to he's just gonna have to live off of his family fortune and not make more money i i'm oh. i'm i can't i can't feel sympathy for this man because this is totally making his own bed and now laying in it so, yeah yeah Exactly. And as for Don Lemon getting fired from CNN, you know, it's it's interesting. Like I haven't I didn't really follow him. I always sort of generally liked him when I would see him, but I didn't watch him like, you know, religiously or anything. He had been sort of demoted a while back. I guess he had like a primetime show and then he wound up doing a morning show with three different anchors. Hmm. And some people say that he was still acting like the sole star and sort of talking over people and being really sort of treating people behind the scenes in ways that weren't appropriate and things like that. That I, I don't know about. There was the episode where he said that Nikki Haley was past her prime, which in its context, I have to say, I, I, I've watched it a couple times and he was commenting on how she was talking about biden as being like too old and he was like i'm uncomfortable with this whole age thing and he said well she's past her prime and the the other anchor was like well what do you mean by that you know and obviously the whole conversation sucks but <laughs> i can i can understand his saying that the voting populace could see this situation that way and to be commenting on that that's how i took it i didn't think he was saying a oh, women over 40 or 
oh, it's all downhill or something. You know, I don't know. What yeah, except there's been so much of that. And our culture has up until like 10 minutes ago was that. Right. So, you know, it's it's playing into old stereotypes that aren't playing well anyway. And yeah. So, so my only com my only comment is like I agreed like why perpetuate the stereotype? But I don't think that there's something terrible about commenting on the fact that the stereotype exists and that people might vote based on them. <laughs> you know what I mean? I guess. I guess. So, but either way, like I mean, there must have been. I I have to think. I have to think there has to be that that comment was the tip of the iceberg, and that there's this whole bunch of shit underneath. That we're yeah. not talking about because then it's going to be dragging people that don't want to be dragged into things into, you know, like the behind the scenes people. I'm right. sure, I, you know, it's like you don't treat your staff like dirt right. and and then expect them to have your back when when the shit hits the fan. Right. Yeah. You that's know? what I think is more likely. I mean, I think ultimately that's what I was going to say that I don't know what happened, but it seems <laughs> like there was a lot more shit than. So a couple on air, yeah, in you know, like faux pas or something like that. So yes, I, I anyway, think so as well, <laughs> sayonara <laughs> to yeah, and, uh, we'll and see I what and, happens next? Okay, my next my next article is a more upbeat one, and it's about chemists at the University of Colorado are they're working on finding ways to make plastics make plastic recycling more effective. So they're trying to come up with ways to treat used plastic to get it to the point where it's a higher grade of plastic and then it can be put back into the liquid plastic that they use to make all of the things they make out of plastic. Because when they're making plastic stuff, it they heat it up and it and it then it goes through a bunch of pipes and into molds and then gets formed into to bottles or whatever. And then when we recycle it, it's like all of these different plastics are jumbled together and they're not consistent polymers. So it's a degraded kind of plastic. So the chemists at the University of Colorado are looking into processes to change that and to make the recycling more efficient. And I think that's a, a good thing. And it, it kind of dovetails with other universities, like the one in Canada I talked about either in the last show or two shows ago, where where they found a process to get the PFAS, which I forget what that acronym stands for, probably like perfluorocarbon something, something, something. Get that out of our environment because that's like in our drinking water now everywhere. That's mm -hmm. the that's the stuff they use for the nonstick coating that John Oliver was talking about a couple of months ago. So per And polyfluorinated substances. Thank you. Yes. So... It sounds like university chemistry departments are getting grants from their various governments to find solutions to these problems. I'm glad they're doing this now. I'm sorry they haven't been doing this like for the past 40 years and we actually have the things, but hopefully it's not too late. Yeah, that's 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 true. I mean, it's it's a it's a positive step for sure. And yeah. I just want to correct now. I'm seeing per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, which makes okay. a little more sense. So okay, I'll that's where just... the A comes from. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering why I, I just saw both versions, but I think that one makes yeah. more sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're also more chemistry oriented than I am at this point. 
you've you've had an actual background in it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at some point. I miss the lab sometimes. I really do. It's good times. And the, uh, is it the last thing? The next to last no, it's, thing. It's next to last thing. Okay. So there's a new possible Twitter replacement on the horizon. Who knows? But Jack Dorsey, who originated Twitter, now mm. has Blue Sky out. And that has been, it's it's sort of like a very stripped down version of Twitter. It's like kind of going back to basics where I don't well, think you have DMs. What, it, yeah. It, it, it needs yeah, we need a do-over. <laughs> exactly. So it doesn't have DMs yet or anything like that. It's like 300 characters only. It's by invitation currently. So you oh. have, I guess there has to be someone who's on it for you to get on it at this point to, to, to sort of uh, bring you along. But apparently there's been like a big boom in it over the last few days or so. So it's sort of looking like more likely because mastodon was there for a while and that kind of didn't it seemed to fizzle or something oh, i don't know so, i have the people i know who are on mastodon are still there i'm yeah. not on it yet but i mean and and they're talking about how posts on on their mastodon account are getting like an order of magnitude more views than their tweets okay so well yeah i mean i think if you can find and build your community on there it probably does have some potential yeah. but this no, I'm right. I'll go. If anybody has a, a blue sky invite, they want to ship to us. We'll pop over there. Honestly. Yes, that's what I was going to say, too. <laughs> I would, I, I'm curious now, you know. Yeah. Other than it be and other than like the the, uh, the equivalent of a tweet being called a skeet, which is really not <laughs> great. No, <laughs> I, I don't know that that was Dorsey's idea. I think that was the community lowest common denominator sort of uh, choice. I guess. <laughs> but it that sounds funny. Yeah, it, it sounds it sounds promising. So we'll see. Okay. And now the, the last news item of the day is Uber has an index of items that people leave in their vehicles. And I encourage you to go to our website and find the link that we're going to have there in their show notes because this is a pretty long art it's a pretty long list of things and i'm only going to talk about what they talked about the 50 most unique and in quotes lost items uh, like for example danny devito's christmas ornament my dog is in the car a toy poodle somebody left their dog oh. a fog machine an ankle monitor my unicycle, I mean, it's not my unicycle, but somebody left a unicycle in a car. And these, I guess, are taken directly from, I guess, the customer service posts saying, I left blah, blah, blah on my car in, in the car I just was in. 16 ounces of fake blood, a printer and a remote controlled vibrator. Oh, no. A small camping stove and my funeral pamphlets, calculator and tacos. A sentimental green pen, a lightsaber, hamsters, <laughs> a half a gallon of fireball. Oh, how do people half a gallon! Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> and how do people leave their animals? That's just, that's really I, that's very sad. Yeah. A mannequin wig head. <laughs> oh my gosh, that would be me. <laughs> Except I would hopefully not leave it. I love wig heads. <laughs> <laughs> my happy sauce. I don't know what the hell that is. Uh, two fingernails. I'm hoping that's those are tips, like from, <laughs> from a manicure, really? and not just like I was cutting my fingernails and I left two of them in the car. Oh, really? oh my god! 
a fire sword. Oh, okay. So, so I assume it's like a fire eating sword, maybe. Tattoo ink and gold antlers. <laughs> a power of attorney document issued by the Turkish consulate. Uh, two pet turtles. Somebody wrote, I lost my girlfriend. Aww. A bidet. <laughs> that one just cracks me up. Lotion and chicken wings. I... <laughs> <laughs> the combination of certain things, like was it camping equipment and funeral something? Yes, <laughs> yes, something like that. One Gucci loafer. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, rash cream, an important pregnancy test. And this person is very good. They they left self respect mostly in their car. <laughs> <laughs> Paintings of my wife. And my friend's fake tooth. <laughs> and there's a lot more stuff about that. And they talk about the most forgetful days and times. And certain items are more likely to be lost on certain days. Like they say, people are most likely to forget keys on Tuesdays. So that was a little amusing look down what people are leaving in Ubers. And I'm waiting for one of the late night talk show hosts to have a, to to do a riff on this at some point. So it sounds like it sounds ready for that. It for does. Sure. It does. And and I think that's all the news we are going to handle today. Welcome to the Blanket Fort. This is the space where Wendy and I talk about things. Sometimes we hide, sometimes we find comfort, sometimes we discuss health and wellness and that sort of thing. And today, I think we just wanted to have a little bit of a heart-to-heart -heart about coming out. Okay. And I'm not sure where this conversation will go, but it's good to just kind of touch in about it. Yeah. I mean, I do. I do like... Dr. Lulu's phrasing of inviting in instead of coming out. I really, I really liked that from her interview in a earlier show this season, an episode, I guess, was it 137? Yes. It's going to take more than that one podcast to change the, the zeitgeist phraseology for letting people know your true self, which is what coming out really is. Right. Yeah. And her idea was that coming out sort of implies that you're exposing something that's negative, you know? You're right, right, right. Coming out about having a, some disease or some issue or some problem and, and really just really what we're talking about is inviting someone in to know, to know something true. About right. You. Yeah. But that's, yes. So that's what we mean. And we're using the popular vernacular rather than the kinder and more accurate and better connotationed yes <laughs> all right i'm gonna i need to like take off my pedant hat <laughs> <laughs> oh my god mm. yes can wendy how pretend i'm coming out as a pretentious jerk so. <laughs> <laughs> oh man and you're seeing it right now <laughs> nah, nah, it's all good 
So, yeah, I, I, it's a it's always good to have a place, I think, where you feel comfortable being all of yourself. Oh, yes. And that's what I think one of the things I've really tried to do is like create spaces where people can just be queer or be whatever, whatever they are, you know. And how do you do that? Because I keep thinking I do that, but I'm not sure that I do. So please describe how you create a space where people feel comfortable to be themselves. I think that in general, I try, I mean, I, I actually came out, I don't know if I've told my original coming out stories, but I came out as a lesbian at nine and then as bi when I was 12. Okay. Um, and just have always known that to be myself, you know, who I am. So I think part of it for me is that in most spaces, I think after that time, I mean, the high school was a little different because I was in Catholic school and I felt like I needed to be a little less loud about myself in some ways. But for the most part, I, I just try not to shy away from talking about what's in my life. So for example, like if someone says, what did you do this weekend? And if I went to the pride festival or something like I would just say that. So I'm not necessarily being in your face political per se all the time about queerness. But when it comes up, I try not to shy from just saying what I did or who I was with. If I was with a partner who is female or non-binary or whatever, just to mm -hmm. sort of just say it. And sometimes it's, Sometimes it takes a little bit of guts, depending on where, especially when I was younger, depending on where my situation was or where I was. But I think just being quietly out creates spaces for people to know that though they, that I'm someone that they could talk to about that. Okay. You know, but then also in more formal ways. I mean, I always, I like to be parts of organizations where we create like social events and things like that. So having a buy night out or having a poly meetup group or things like that where okay. people can okay. actually know that, oh, this is the place for all of us to gather. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You've actually reminded me, and I had forgotten about this completely until my nephew reminded me of it when we went to visit them at their, their house was there was a time and it must've been when I was pregnant because I was living with my mother-in-law and this was the time where all our, you know, many of her kids moved home and we and, and my husband and I were in this tiny bedroom with that was smaller than the tent I would go camping in. And, you know, the mattress on the floor <laughs> and, and I would and one there were like, I was trying to think if if I can remember this, there were one, two, three, four, five, six. There were six adults and two to four children living in a house with one bathroom which if this was a sitcom it would not you know people would not believe that this would you know how can you live like this so <laughs> we did it, it wasn't fun but yeah we worked it out and my nephew reminded me of this day or this this episode where I think, you know, him and a friend of his would be like laying on my mother-in-law's king-size bed because there was a TV in there and, and they could watch TV, you know, privately without, you know, like the two TVs in the house, like in the in the living room and then in the parents' bedroom kind of situation. And they were up there 
hanging out and I had apparently got into bed with them and and it, the way he tells it is like I just announced out of the blue like oh I'm bi by the way and I think and I think I might have been just saying that to let him know that it I was a safe person to come out to because <laughs> he was gay he, he and, and it was really he is gay not was gay he is gay and I actually I performed uh, the, when he married his his husband I performed the marriage or I officiated the marriage rather but I mean, he just told me this when we were visiting and I had no memory of this at all you know it's funny <laughs> um, but it, yeah it is it is and and when he came out it's like the reaction was you know we we knew <laughs> <laughs> right it's like we we it, this is not a surprise Pete so <laughs> you know so I I you know when I when I read about other people's coming out where their parents are shocked or they're, you know, I, I'm going, you know, with the, the, these parents must not pay attention to their kids at all because it was so obvious that he was gay from a very young age. So, you know, so it, 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 it makes me wonder about a lot of parents and not getting it with their kids. It makes that, that kind of makes me sad. Yeah. I think so. a lot of people though, I mean, you know, you you really can't tell. I mean, sometimes there are markers that you know people think of as what makes someone seem queer or whatever. But I think there could be a combination of parents not wanting to know and kids not wanting them to know. <laughs> so okay, there could be that. Yeah, you know. my my coming out was not well. It's like I mm. came out when I was young to my dad and then my, I got outed to my mother, which was really bad and nasty. Not, oh. not a good memory at all. Um, oh, she did not like having a nine-year-old lesbian in the house. <laughs> <laughs> I think this was when I was like 14 or something and I got outed oh, to okay. her by someone. And yeah, well, yeah, when I was nine, my dad just thought I didn't know what I was talking about. He just thought, like, oh, you're, you, it's a phrase, phase, whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. So you just I mean, learned a new word. Yeah, like... <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, but in a sense, he was right. I did catch up to my understanding of liking boys, you know. But I never stopped <laughs> liking the girls. That's for sure. It's hard to like boys when they're nine, <laughs> right? And just in general, <laughs> nine-year-old boys are just yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting. I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel like coming out or inviting in or whatever is, it's really a continuing process because there's not like, oh yeah, you put out one billboard and then that's it, you know? <laughs> right. Because there, you're always, you're always interacting with new people and mm -hmm. you're interacting with people, you know, in new ways or, or people are being dense and not paying attention, yeah. you know, like, like if you're just, a bit player in their in their story they're not necessarily you know thinking about it right right you know if they're not thinking of sleeping with you for example they, <laughs> they may not care what you know what your preferences are right <laughs> oh and that's actually a good point because i think a lot of people think that you're putting too much information in their face by saying you're you're queer you know mm. and it's not about telling people like your actual sexual you know preferences in bed or something like that it's about just being able to be who all of who you are just right just to 
just to live fully and openly, you know, and well, right. And, and people and don't get that, that your identity, it can play into what you're looking for in bed. It can play into how you, you approach sexuality, but it, it goes well beyond the bedroom. It goes, it, it's bigger than that. Sure. I mean, just the it's idea a much, of, no, no, it, it, I was just going to say it's a much bigger box. Right, exactly. And just the idea of just comfortably walking down the street with your partner or having a mm -hmm. photo on your desk of your partner or or visiting or, you know, there's so many things that just, you know, connect with who you are, who your partner is, you know, and who you right. are. You know, gender coming out is actually kind of my most, it's the most difficult one for me right now. Because I I I identify as non-binary, and but but at the same time I'm comfortable with femaleness. Like I'm not, I don't need to avoid all female terms, and because that's definitely part of me too, and my background and well, my some life. female terms, some feeling some, some female terms female I cannot stand. Yes, you're right. I've yeah, because you've called me out on many occasions if I've used the wrong female term <laughs> yeah that's true that's true yeah like the really girly ones you yeah. don't like those right <laughs> true. you don't like lady you oh, don't no. like lady no, no, no. oh god no yeah <laughs> but yeah and that one it's i guess it's tiresome in a way because people understand it less and it is a more nebulous kind of an experience for me. It's not like mm. I'm this, I'm not that. I'm not, you know what I mean? It's, we're newer at talking about it. And I think our yeah. culture is very hostile about talking about it right now. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, okay, that that actually feeds into to something, or an essay I read recently that, and it kind of explains where this ridiculous pushback is coming from. And it's because there still is, I would say, I mean, certainly people of our generation and maybe a little bit, well, you're, you're a Gen X, aren't you? Mm -hmm. Okay. So both of our generations, although I'm, I'm technically that generation Jones, which is that in between the boomers and the Gen X, right, <laughs> so I'm right. right smack in the middle of that because most of my friends are Gen X and not as many are boomers so i definitely feel i'm part of that cohort even though i'm chronologically not <laughs> and but they were saying so so our generations were like the last ones that were raised where conformity was rewarded and individualism or nonconformity was punished like severely mm. And I mean, that's why, you know, like in the 50s and the 60s, a lot of times, you know, gay people were that's that's where the closet came from, because they had to be because they had there were laws and, and they would lose their jobs and do all the you know, there would be a lot of negative outcomes if it right. came out that they were gay, for example. And and now society has kind of flipped that script where being nonconformist is considered something worthy of praise and being conformist is you know we're not punishing people for being nonconformist anymore and these people who were raised that way it's they can't accept that they can't wrap their heads around it and i'm guessing i 
wasn't part of that because I was never a conformist, mm-hmm. you know, you know, as a child, as a child, I, I realized that being female was a disadvantage in the world. You know, it, it you didn't have to really be very aware to, to figure that one out. And, and I remember feeling that it was unfair <laughs> that girls were treating this way. I kind of wanted to be a boy and it was, and it, and I remember having really short hair and I remember, you know, in, in fourth or fifth grade, I was consistently misgendered, which I thought was very funny. And I kind of liked it being, you know, everybody thinking I was a guy and, or a boy rather. And, and, but it was more, it was more because I recognized the privilege that boys had over women, over girls. And I wanted that, you know, I, you could tell that they were, they were, they had, it was easier for them. And I kind of wanted that. And that, and that's, that's, then that was why I think I wanted, you know, when, if you would ask me if when I was like nine or 10, I say, like, I want to be a boy. I have since changed that opinion, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, I was going to uh, ask was you more... if that, if that has, to, if that plays into your gender identity now, because sort of wanting what the other side has and sort of like an inherent feeling of who you are, I think are different things. Right. It is. It yeah. is different. I, I don't feel non-binary, but I am comfortable I'm comfortable with my womanhood. I'm comfortable with it. You know, I've I've lived in this body for 65 years and I'm okay. I don't have I don't have, you know, gender dysphoria. Considering my interactions with white males, I don't want to be one. You know, even though I I love one very dearly. I've loved men. I've loved white men. <laughs> and but I don't want to be one. I would rather I would rather be who I am than than try to be you know a, a, something different. But I definitely have male characteristics. If you're if you're you know when you do those stupid tests that they that mm-hmm. go online every once in a while, I always skew slightly male, and I'm okay with that. You know I can. Mm-hmm that's just that's and and those are you know and then you look at those tests and you go oh well you know they're really they're really buying into the whole gender binary thing when you go you know do you like the color pink or blue you know that it's it's that kind of stupid it's at that level of questions you know it's like stuff that traditionally has been a male trait for example like to be out, you know, it, it's like they're saying, you know, well, men are outspoken and women are, are quiet, you know, that kind of shit. The stuff that that really was never really true. But that society did to to kind of force you into these ridiculous gender roles. Hmm. You know, where where, you know, because I was I grew up when I was growing up, the only, ex, you know, when we were in school and they were teaching us what are acceptable roles for women it was mommy in the in in order of importance it was mommy teacher nurse that was pretty much it and Mm. you know ancillary a secretary librarian you know that kind of shit and i didn't want to be any of those things Mm. i wanted to be an astronaut right i see i remember (laughs) learning that we you could be anything you wanted to be 
but I, I also, I think we got the, also got those messages too, that the typical things were the things you just mentioned. Right. Well, they didn't tell us we could be anything we wanted to be when I was a little kid. Mm. That hadn't, that hadn't gotten into society yet. Okay. You know. So I have a question. So you identify as a woman. And I think I've also seen that you sometimes mention your pronouns as she, they, and I'm wondering how that, how that. Oh, I'm okay. Oh, I'm okay with being a they. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not militantly female, you know, I'm not like, I mean, it's hard to think of me as anything else just because of the size of my secondary sexual characteristics. Um, (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's, it's hard. It's hard to play a guy when your boobs are as big as mine. You may have some, (laughs) some experience with that because you're fairly well endowed as well. But yeah, I mean, you know, the one, the, 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 one time I was cross-dressing for Halloween, and I've said, talked about this many times, uh, it, because it was, a, it was a very intense day when I was dressed as my husband, and, and guys, and I was, it was, ner- I was nervous, because guys, you know, would look at me, and they didn't know who I was, and I'd get, like, a lot of side-eye from scary bikers, and that's not who you want to get side-eye from. Right. <laughs> And then, you know, walking into the to the women's room to to pee, I had to kind of, you know, show them my tits because they were. <laughs> I mean, I you know, I just pulled my big baggy shirt up to show the the tight shirt where I was kind of holding my breast down. That's um, funny. You know, I did. It was like I was I walked in there and there was like four women who were about to knife me. Well, not really. You know, it just it felt like that. It was a biker bar. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 stereotyping bikers. Sorry. But they were very angrily saying, this is the women's room. You know, you're not, a, you know. And then I said, I'm a girl. Leave me alone. And then they, and they was everything was fine. They were they started laughing and he goes, oh, my God, I totally thought you were a dude. Mm-hmm. So. So that was a really interesting experience, you know, uh, you know, not being, you know, it's like, I don't like not being recognized by people I know. I don't like that. And I don't know that that's a gender. (laughs) I don't know what Um, that is about. I don't know. I don't know what that's about. Yeah. I don't know what that's about either. But I mean, like the, like when I showed up at a, at a hands of change thing with very different hair. Like my hair, I, I stopped dyeing it and it turned white and like nobody recognized me. And I was like, guys, it's me. Oh. <laughs> like, Come on. I, I felt terrible. But yeah, I like to be recognized. But yeah, I mean, if somebody, I, all right. The reason I say she, they is if, you know, I will err to they if I, if it's not obvious, you know, I would just use they as pronouns in general just because i i have trouble remembering to say it when i'm because there was i know there was a they in our in an interview and i kept referring to them as he which because they were presenting kind of male and and it was also i think it was probably also their first name is the name same as my brother and that oh yeah you know i'm i'm (laughs) definitely you know that the he that name is a he to me so and that's a very bad habit so i try to use they as my default now okay so 
because they is general is generic. They is yeah. every they could be everybody. They could I, be anybody. I'm actually <laughs> appreciating they them for myself now. So oh, would, okay. Yeah, I'm. I've the last time I did an, an interview, I I said this with my pronouns, and it was cool. It was very natural. It felt very natural. Now, I, at oh, first, good. I was more. I really like Z here, but that didn't really take off. Like people don't use those other words. Right, you know? right. It's it's easy. I think it was easier for society to repurpose, to reclaim something that's already day. in the language. That's very true. Yes, instead of learning a new word. Yeah. Although we seem to learn new words just fine. Like new grammar <laughs> is tough. New single in individual words and portmanteaus, like those come up this, all the time. We yeah. Get, we're good at those for sure. But, but yeah, no, I really like they, they them. I, I'm not, again, I'm not militant about it. I'm more interested in people. I'm more interested in having conversations with people and having them know who I am. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully those pronouns and terms and ways of talking about me sort of intermingle and just become part of the conversation that's really my ideal ultimately i'm definitely yeah. not about causing drama about it but it is nice when it's it flows you know yeah 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 and i i and now i now you've just got me thinking about the romance languages and the gendered pronouns for nouns like cats are male you know for it was always le chien it's not la chien Right, it's, it's, el, el gato. It, um, yeah, and and you know, like a pen, a pen is gendered, and it's it's it, it, that like I feel I feel bad for <laughs> for the French and Spanish and Latin people because because they've assigned genders to like all of these random things. Right, and, right. And they need to not do that anymore. Maybe I don't know. Well, I don't know. That's, you know, I, I don't know. I think I think we can't decide that if it's not our language. Like for I example, know we can't. We can't. I know that Latinx became really, really contentious because people started using Latinx to take gender out of discussing Latino, Latina people. Right. Right. And it seemed at least I, there was a very small group of people who supported that a very very large vocal group of people who were saying what the hell are you doing like <laughs> it's our language is fine thank you <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> so i haven't heard it used that much anymore but i know that there was like a really a pretty large backlash to mm. adding latin latinx to the language so well, i don't know i It'd be interesting i don't know but english english used to have gendered Yes. Pronouns, pronouns, but that all went away in in the olden olden days because of the villages you know, next to each other and there were people speaking Norse and there were people speaking old English and there were people speaking French, maybe, I don't know, and and they were trying to sell a cow and it and they had different genders for the word. And so people just gave up and said the, just okay, it's the, and and so we got a, a, a non-gendered article, I guess. The is an article, right? Yes. It's not a pronoun, right? Right. Okay. So, so that's how we got non-gendered articles. It had to do with people speaking different languages living next to each other. Nice. And uh, you know, so, yeah. <laughs> 
Anyway. So that's where the and they came from. It's about to turn anyway. into a language geekscape. I, I know. I, I know. totally geek out on language stuff. But <laughs> we should probably go, but I, it's just, it's good to have a blanket fort to come to and just be myself. Yeah. To hang oh, out I you. love yourself. Your love yourself. yourself is is a great self to have and to be next to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mutual mutual admiration society. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'd like to welcome Kurt Esslinger to the Leftscape. Kurt Esslinger is assigned by the Presbyterian Church USA to work with an ecumenical council of churches in Korea to help with their campaign for peace on the Korean Peninsula. Having grown up in Texas, he has been living in Korea for the past 10 years. He says that since middle school, he's been wrestling with what it means to identify as a Christian while also identifying as left-wing. And he has left-wing here phonetically in Korean, but I'd love to hear you pronounce yeah, it. Yeah, in Korean, dwapa. That's yeah. left wing. Very cool. Dwa means left, and then pa is like the wing of the. So dwa pa. Upa is right wing. But, interesting. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's, it's an analogous term that they use, but right, just right. translated. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Well, welcome. Thank you. Yeah. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh. Well, first of all, I, I just want to say please pardon my lack of knowledge in this area. I. I'm aware of like the obvious tensions and political differences between North and South Korea, but I, I wasn't even, I mean, are they still considered to be at war? That's the thing that I thought, mm -hmm. at least in my mind, was ended well before I was born, before Vietnam, and, but, I, but I would love a little 101 on right, right. what you're yes, so talking about and working yeah, with. Yeah, still technically at war. So the, the war officially broke out in 1950, and then there was the armistice agreement signed in 1953 that ceased, ceased hostilities, so paused the war. Um, but in the armistice agreement, there was also a clause saying, in six months, we'll gather back together so that we can sign a, a formal peace treaty to actually end the war in the state of war. That never happened. So right now, there's a, a, a state of war. And one of the most interesting implications of that is that under the Mutual Defense Treaty that the U.S. signed with South Korea in 1952 is that the U.S. military maintains operational command authority over the South Korean military. So command, command of the South Korean military right now lies not with the South Korean president, but with the commander of U.S. forces in Korea. Since the 1950s, that's been yes, sort of the status quo. Been that way since then, and there are, there are memos sent between U.S. military and South Korea that even uh, talk about U.S. being the main authority even before that, without an official uh, without an official defense treaty signed. But okay, so can you describe the basic sides that are at work? I know it's. Not easy. It's not simple. I'm asking like you know one on one questions, but it's not a one on one sure, course. Sure, sure. Well, I'll, I'll uh, because there's there is limited time. Maybe I'll just try to give the the most concise description I could give, and then we can just go with questions from that. But so basically, okay. the 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 two sides of this ongoing war are North Korea and then South Korea and the U.S. So when the Korean War itself was actually going on, 
there was, you could say, the Soviet Union was providing North Korea resources, but didn't themselves participate officially in the war. And then eventually China had joined in, and China actually sent troops into the war. That was after General MacArthur moved U.S. troops all the way up to the Chinese border. So then the Chinese joined in. But since then, both China and Russia, which is no longer the Soviet Union, are out. So it's only the the China and, and Russia have established regular diplomatic relations with everyone else on the other side of the war, on the side of the conflict. So it's only the U.S. and South Korea that remain officially in the conflict and refusing to to have uh, regularized diplomatic relations with North Korea. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of people would think that this is about political, like the con- the control of the area based uh, w- in the alignments of political ideology. So you have sort of the more communist authoritarian group and then the allies group or yeah. something like yeah. that. So is that well, I, what, how you know, what, you the way I would characterize it characterize. is communist authoritarianism versus capitalist authoritarianism. You know, in that sense, okay. like I, when it, when That's, I first started yeah. my work for the Presbyterian Church, they they had a little introduction paragraph about South Korea and saying in in 1945, you know, when after World War II was ended and and uh, Korea was liberated from Japanese occupation, then the a conflict began between communism and democracy, and the U.S. was on the side of democracy in South Korea with South Korea, you know. And I, I came in and you know, I asked them to revise that because I'm like, everything that I've read since I've gotten to Korea, there is nothing democratic about what the U.S. was doing in 1945 and the way South Korea was created. So it's really more like communism versus capitalism in terms of in terms of the ideological ideological divide but there's also all the history of the the Korea the Korean peninsula being a strategic point and being fought over by the world powers around it and that's been for hundreds of years right so the US only came in and and was part of the most recent part of that but so some of the conflict and the divide that continues even within South Korea is also around that of who has control over what's going on in Korea. Mm-hmm. So can you give me a little bit more about the events and policies that led up to this originally? Right. So, yeah. Well, so if you've ever heard the TED talk of the the danger of a single story, that's the woman and then I... I have always have a hard time remembering the name, but Chim- Chimanda in okay. Gochie. I'll I look think. for that. I have not heard. Um, so yeah. she talks about the if you want to erase an entire people from a history, you start the story in the middle, and I feel like that's what we've done with our history classes, right? That we've all been taught that the story began when the evil North Koreans invaded in 1950, and none of us learned of what what was happening in the in the years before that. So. One thing to know quickly is that South Korea or the Korean Peninsula, not both. There was, it was, at, it was one at the time was under Japanese occupation, and that was from a you know started around 1905, officially 1910, until the end of World War II, uh, and so World War II ended, and Korea was liberated from 
Japanese colonization. And then there was a question of, you know, what was going to happen in Korea after that, you know, who, who was going to be in charge immediately following that. And so the U.S. and the Soviet, Soviet Union decided to split the peninsula, peninsula into two zones where the Soviet Union would take over the, the north zone and the U.S. would take over the southern zone. And so in terms of U.S. policy, the, there was a question of whether or not they were going to work with all the local organizations that were trying to create an autonomous Korean authority, an, an authority that was created by the people themselves uh, and, and had the popular support behind it. The trouble that the U.S. saw was that, like, oh, there were some communists involved in that. And we're not sure whether or not we're going to work with any of the communists. The other complication was that all the sort of wealthy business owners and landowners were the ones who worked with Japanese colonization to help them oppress their fellow Koreans throughout, throughout Japanese occupation. So in the end, in, you know, well, in, on August 15th, World War II was ended. Uh, Japan officially surrendered after the, the two atomic bombs were dropped. Uh, and then Koreans started creating their own organizations, like people's committees were taking care of governance and policing and factories and lands. And then the U.S. came in in September and chose to only talk to the wealthy landowners and business owners and say, okay, you are going to be our allies. And since you were a part of the Japanese government structure, then you probably, we don't need to teach you anything about being a new government structure. We just, we just give you a little bit of advice. And so they took all the, the oppressors, Korean oppressors, and put them back in charge of their fellow Koreans and then chose to not only not work with all the moderates and left wings and then right wing people who were willing to work with the people's committees. They didn't just, U.S. didn't just ignore them. U.S. eventually made them illegal in and of themselves. And so we came in after World War II and basically chose the oppressors. We chose like the fascists who were then, you know, so, you know, maybe they weren't quite as fascist as they were under Japanese occupation during World War II, but they, they were continuing to be quasi fascist in a sense. And so that became the foundation of the South Korean government. And so there was immense struggle within the South Korean zone just from 1945 through 19, uh, up until 1948 when the U.S. finally said, well, we're going to make our own separate South Korea anyway. And then uh, a separate South Korean Republic of Korea was created in 1948. And the beginning of that also started with massacres that happened on the island of Jeju that went all the way through the Korean War as people on the island of Jeju were like, no, we're not interested. We don't want our oppressors back in power, you know. And so that struggle essentially led to the beginning of the Korean War. So when North Korea invaded in 1950, you know, I, I'm not saying that they're necessarily the good guys, you know, really it's more like there are no good guys. But when North Korea invaded in 1950, the, the, Koreans that they were fighting who were behind the other barrels of the guns were the same Koreans that they had been fighting against during World War II. The same Koreans who before were fighting under the Japanese military, under the Japanese flag, against, South, against Korean independence. The only difference was they were, those Koreans were now fighting under the U.S. flag against Korean independence, in a way you could say. Uh, and so that... That 
conflict and that tension has basically never ended as, as that led to decades of military dictatorships in South Korea that only officially ended constitutionally in 1987, but then the party that was still putting military generals were in, in the presidency were still in power after that. So the opposition party didn't win a presidency until 1998, which happens to be when I graduated high school, which is that, <laughs> that feels <laughs> awfully recent. And so since then, you know, South Korea has been in this struggle for how do we pull ourselves out of that vice, that grip of U.S. domination, political party that is is connected themselves to the U.S. alliance in order to perpetuate their power over and against popular will of South Korean people even. And how do they reform the institutions that were created to perpetuate that power, like the, the national police, the South Korean military, the intelligence agencies, the CIA, which is now called the National Intelligence Service. And so that's also been a constant struggle. In addition to the military relationship where the U.S. military has command authority over the South Korean military. So even if South Korea said, we're ready to end the war and have peace with North Korea, they don't have the authority to do that because they would have to get the approval of the U.S. commander of forces, of the U.S. government. And up until now, the U.S. suddenly, you know, they say they want peace, but then when a progressive political party comes in power in South Korea, all of a sudden the U.S. is like, well, you know what, we're not really comfortable with this yet. You know, we think we need to ass assert our authority a little bit, but then find ways to make it look like it's not exactly U.S. authority. And so that, that was one of the main reasons the peace process was scuttled in the last couple of years and when Moon Jae-in was president. Wow. Okay. That was a lot, right? That <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> I just... My brain hurts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so what is the what do you think the US sees as the benefit of maintaining war? There? Right. Well there's a couple of theories. Maybe I'll I'll go with a couple of them. One one of them is yeah. That it's economically beneficial because, in a sense, so the, the U.S. military presence in South Korea was the beginning of the military-industrial complex. So up until then, the U.S. didn't have any ongoing presence, military presence around the world, especially on a war footing of itself. But the fact that South, that the presence in South Korea, and the fact that there was a constant state of war meant that the military was constantly needing upgrades in order to be on top of the war. And so that became a constant feedback loop of invest and earn the profit from all the new weapons that were designed and created to, to maintain our asymmetric fighting ability, our ability to be dominant on, in the, the state of war. So there's a, I'll, some people will talk about like, this is really just about profit and, so long as the U.S. can profit from this situation, they'll, they'll maintain the state of war. Another theory is that it's really all about China, which is similar to all the sort of all the ways that the Korean Peninsula has been taken over in years before, where you know China at once had South Korea as a tributary, and then Japan came in and said, "No, we we are fighting for Korean independence. We will." you know, liberate you from China and then proceeded to colonize Korea themselves kind of thing. 
So there's a, a sense that the U.S. wants to make sure it can have a, an immense military presence on the South Korean land so that it has a military presence right next to China. And that, you know, that antagonism, for me, that's the the same antagonism connected to the years the, the the beginnings of the U.S. sending its Navy out for the first time into the Pacific, basically trying to maintain its ability for U.S. businesses to reach markets, you know, or to, to maintain its own control of trade routes. Uh, and so that antagonism began then, can, you know, was part of the opium wars when the U.S. Navy participated in that, uh, and then has, has continued this this sort of antagonism of of U.S. versus China, in a sense. But I think one other piece for me is this sort of maintaining the myth that we are the good guys, but also this kind of racist assumption, orientalist assumption, you could say, that our culture, our civilization, our, our idea of democracy, and our religions are superior to that of Korea's culture, to that of Korea's intelligence. And so we know, this is what we tell ourselves, we know what's better for Korea, we know what's good for Korea, even more so than Koreans know for themselves. And so that has given us the, the legitimate, like it legitimizes for us why we're, why we're able to block efforts by, say, governments like Moon Jae-in or before the Romuhyun, Ro uh, Hyun governments. Of, of being able to say, yes, the, there's popular support for this president following this policy in South Korea, but we need to step, it, step in and block it because we know what's better for them. We know that peace isn't actually good, that they really in their hearts really want us to maintain this hostility. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I appreciate hearing the various different approaches to it like the danger would you say the danger of one story yeah the danger of a single like story that? right it's danger of a single yeah so i mean just to look at it from those various angles and things that we really don't hear in the whatever you hear in the news is just very simplistic right. you know and i don't typically hear any of that so that's really helpful yeah Kim Jong-un is, is no good <laughs> you know that's about it yeah well and and that's uh you know the same things that we're told about North Korea and about North Korean leadership now that they're crazy that they're totally evil they can't right. possibly understand or understand want peace or be able to authentically negotiate are the same sort of the same sort of racist caricature that we took into Korea in 1945, where the U.S. military put into power, one policy especially was taking all the, the police officers, the Korean police officers who worked for Japanese national police under colonization. You know, they were the ones who, for Japan, tortured and suppressed independence movements and destroyed their own fellow Koreans. So as soon as Japan surrendered, Koreans, all villages everywhere, removed all those police officers saying, you're done, you're, you're not allowed to oppress us anymore, and removed them from their jobs. And the Soviet Union came in the north and said, we don't, like, as long as the U.S. isn't in charge of you, we don't actually care as much about what you do. So you can, 
you can organize yourselves. And so the villages continued their own sort of volunteer police forces in the northern zone. When the U.S. arrived, the U.S. brought all those fascist police officers back, put them back into their positions and removed the village volunteer police forces from their jobs. And so the, that, you know, was probably the most, like it caused the most anger among the populations in the Southern zone. So in 1946, they were already starting to protest. And then those protests were responded to with violence on the part of U.S. military and the, the authoritarian police force that they had put back into their jobs. And then in some parts, the Japanese military, because the U.S. didn't fully remove the Japanese military by 1946. So there were some protests where the U.S. soldiers went along with Japanese soldiers, you know, not the best optics, you might say. And so Koreans were reacted with even more anger. And the response from the U.S. military was, oh, they don't understand law and order. You know, it's, it's because they don't understand what democracy is. They don't understand that we're the ones who are for democracy. So anyone who opposes us must be communist or must be evil or all that. So there's, you know, that, that constant... So now, well, okay, now I've sort of lost my train of thought a little bit, but there's that constant undermining of the, the assumption that Koreans can, in a sense, think for themselves. You know, they must not truly understand what freedom is or what democracy is. So we need to force them to understand our version. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous to say, like, so since then what has happened, but it's kind of been a sort of a stalemate status quo kind of right. same as it ever was. Right. So it's, it's in the ceasefire and yeah. because in 1950, by 1952, China had, had joined and made sure that the U.S. couldn't completely run over North Korea. So there's been that, you know, the border was turned into a demilitarized zone. And in terms of the South Korean part, the U.S. military has main, maintained control over who can cross that border and who can come back and forth and, and whether or not that border is opened or, or, you know, what happens there. So I guess you could say the constant state of just, and it's in a sense, a perpetuation of the containment. Like we're just going to contain. We know that going in and simply attempting regime change could spark nuclear war because now they have nuclear weapons. You know, and, and for North Korea's part, you know, they watched what happened in 2003 when the U.S. preemptively invaded Iraq and then said, yes, it's just because Iraq's part of the axis of evil. And then North Korea, you're also part of the axis of evil. And so in George W. Bush's mind and John Bolton's mind, they thought, ha, we will threaten them with preemptive war and then they'll get scared and then they'll surrender because... You know, all they want is power. Well, you know, in actuality, what they want is the right to self-determination and autonomy. And so when they see that threat that the U.S. is willing to preemptively invade someone who hasn't even attacked them yet, they said the, the only reason U.S. was able to do that is because Iraq did not have nuclear deterrent. So what we need, that was their, that was the, the biggest push for it in 2003. They said, we need our own nuclear deterrent or else the U.S. is going to preemptively invade us whenever they get the itch. So that has been 
the impetus for since then of North Korea to make sure that it has some sort of deterrent and they have to keep upgrading it because the U.S.'s ability to destroy that deterrent is also being upgraded constantly. Uh, and so that's, that's also a part of this constant stalemate that is also a perpetual arms race. Mm-hmm. So how did you come to this peace mission? I, I, I'm curious about how it works, what kind of impact you're making, and what, what your role is in mm. all of this. Well, I guess I had, uh, in grad school, I had made friends with a lot of Koreans who started introducing me to a lot of this history. And then, you know, at that time, I also learned to speak Korean, and I married a Korean as well. So my married partner is, is a Korean citizen still. And we knew we wanted to live in Korea eventually. And so we got this opportunity to become coordinators of a volunteer site for the Presbyterian Church USA in Korea, the Young Adult Volunteer Program. So one of their sites was Korea Site. And so we came in to start working on that. And and I came in with a kind of interest in, I want to figure out what we can do in terms of taking responsibility for the U.S.'s role in this ongoing conflict and how can we work for reconciliation and promoting understanding. So we're through that, I then became connected to this ecumenical council, which is the National Council of Churches in Korea. So they have a committee on reconciliation and reunification that they formed in the 80s when South Korea was still in the midst of a military dictatorship. And so they're continuing to work on sort of Korea peace campaigns and continuing to maintain a relationship with the Korean Christian Federation, which is a federation of Protestant Christians officially recognized by the North Korean government. So they continue to meet with them, sometimes going into North Korea to meet with them and hold sort of joint worship services and write prayers together for peace on the peninsula and all that. And so they brought me on as sort of a, in a role of helping to interpret in a way. So some of the specific tasks I might do are like translating, like they write a statement in Korean, then I'll help translate that statement into English, you know, or they have something, you know, they have a letter, they like if the U.S., like when the U.S. started blocking the joint projects of the peace process um, with between Moon Jae-in and Kim Jong-un. You know, the the NCCK National Council of Churches wrote a letter saying, "U.S., this is bad. This is going to hurt our chances for peace, and we're and take us back to war. Please don't do this." You know, they gave me, you know, Kurt, we have these points that we want in this letter. Could you just could you write something up, and then we'll all check it, and then and then we'll send it on. So in a way, I'm sort of interpreting all that they're doing in the peace process, and all that they're teaching me about the nature of the conflict and trying to share that and interpret it to partners, not only in the U.S., but also say in Europe and, you know, U.K., Germany and and Canada. So it's like, hmm. so how much of it is sort of social communication type things and how much of it is working, do you work directly with governmental agencies or is it sort of like churches talking to each other? Yeah, all of that in a way. But it's mostly, I would say, mostly churches talking to each other. So we do a lot of consultations with our church partners like the United Church of Canada or my my denomination Presbyterian Church USA or the, the church in Germany was a big, has been a big partner in solidarity for them because Germany was also had that history of being divided after World War II and then with Germany finding a kind of 
reunification. Although you could say, yeah, and a lot of Germans tell us but there hasn't really been reconciliation. So when you guys do reunification in Korea, you know, don't make the same mistakes we did and try to do reconciliation at the same time kind of thing. Uh, but so facilitating a lot of those conversations and then and sometimes having our partners, for example, especially in the U.S., church partners will help create a meeting with, for example, the State Department. So in 2016, I, I, I came with the NCCK and did a long tour where we drove from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. over the course of 12 days. And then we met with the Foreign Affairs Committee of the of the House of Representatives. And we also met with the ambassador at that time was Ambassador Robert King. And I think the, the title is something like Ambassador for Human Rights in North Korea. You know, not not just an ambassador who's working on diplomatic, diplomatic relations with North Korea, but an ambassador who's condemning North Korea for their human rights violations. And then, you know, so we met with him and, and our partners are talking about, we have this relationship where we meet North Koreans who, you know, they're not evil. They don't want to destroy us. They don't want power. They, they, just, they want peace and they're interested in mutual understanding and relations. And, you know, Ambassador Robert King responds with, no, no, they're just evil. And so we can't possibly negotiate with them. And that's it. You know, so we've had those kind of conversations as well, both trying to build solidarity and understanding among our partners, but then also connecting directly to decision makers and trying to convince them that hostility and threats are only going to make the war worse and only peaceful means can bring peace in this kind of conflict. Mm -hmm. So I am intrigued by the statement in your bio that you struggle with being Christian and being left wing. And I would really like to hear more about that. Do you feel that the two are at odds? I mean, I, I often think that there are many more people who are left-leaning and Christian, but the, the right-wing Christians kind of have the microphone, you <laughs> right. know? And I wonder how true that is or, or where your sort of conflict comes from. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a, in a sense, I, you know, maybe the Christians who are like right-wing, right-wing, they do generally have the microphone, but then in a lot of the, the well, in some of the Christian communities, they're also the ones who are in charge in times. And so the Presbyterian Church USA has done a lot of work to try to move us a little bit further left. And so, you know, we, that, you know, not to get too much into PCUSA history now, but like uh, the, the, for example, the choice to start participating in civil rights movements and uh, pastors to go out in, and into the streets and join the protesters caused a lot of tension within the PCUSA. And I'm not, I'm not sure if that's the exact, you know, that, that combined with demographics changes in the U.S. was kind of the beginning of us also losing a lot of membership. And so, mm. you know, not that everyone's right wing necessarily, but a lot of Christianity is in one sense, encouraging people to keep your head down. You know, the probably the prevailing message isn't exactly right wing. Like we need to support all the conservative stuff, but it's the more like we should not talk at all about politics. Like the Christianity should be focused just on Jesus, just believing Jesus and not worry about what's happening to our fellow people or whether or not the structure that we're participating in might be perpetuating suffering kind of things. And so, you know, part of the, my struggle was finding other Christians who thought like me. I grew up in 
West Texas, and my dad voted for voted Republican for years and years and donated to George W. Bush's campaign. So I, I grew up hearing those kind of lessons from my dad and then had to figure out what I thought for myself listening to Rage Against the Machine and Pearl Jam and things in high school and, you know, him finding other, you know, pastor youth pastors who listen to the Indigo Girls. And I was like, yes, there's something else out there. There, Yeah, you know, I, I can also, I can, I, I feel more like if, if I'm, consider God to be a God of love, then that love should be caring for the people around us and not just saying, well, they're only hurt because it's their own fault kind of thing, or the poor are poor because they're lazy or, you know, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, that, I guess, making, sh- like, being confident in in the sense that the being sort of progressive and left-wing, but also being Christian is tricky. Well, I, su- I suppose I could also say I, I find tension a lot of times when I go into churches and I try to tell them what, for example, I try to talk about what progressives and left-wings are doing in Korea. And then even progressives and left-wing people in the U.S. are like, wow, no, that can't be right. It can't be true. We really need to continue supporting the right-wing. And they don't say that. You know, they don't say, we need to support right-wing Koreans. But it's we, we really can't support what those progressives and left-wings are doing in Korea. You know, and so I, I, you know, I find that's like a, a lot through the church. I, I get a lot of that pushback, even though I think find some churches who will hear a little bit of what I say about the history of Korea and say, and they, they respond with, Oh, we never knew those kind of things. We, I guess we need to learn a little bit more. And so there's, there has been some support, but I I feel like it's a, a constant tension. And then you have the tension even within Korea where the majority of Korean Christianity is definitely absolutely right wing and definitely pushing more conservative. And so when, for example, when progressive Christians in the U.S. think of what Koreans want, they hear what the majority of the Korean church is saying of like, we need to support the U.S. alliance no matter what. Anyone who opposes U.S. policy or U.S. alliance are all communists and evil, and we need to oppose all of that communist stuff. You know, and so those those labels are also put on to the NCCK, the Ecumenical Council of Churches here in Korea. They're labeled as balgengi, which is Korean Korean word for red. You know, so any sort of progressive thing that they propose, like they work on LGBTQ affirming ministries, then the conservative church will say, ah, that's because you're communist, you know, which is like, what, what's, how, <laughs> like, help us understand that, 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 connection but yeah. you know the connection really doesn't matter it's about making sure that progressive ideas are are suppressed within the the church community mm-hmm. so the people you you talk to i guess particularly in the united states who are think that the progressive people in your church are are like going a bridge too far or something like that is is that because of like the American exceptionalism, like they don't want to hear the other possibilities of this of how the story has unfolded. Yeah, I, or is it part partly just the the religion, the, the the core of the religion that is keeping them more conservative? Yeah, I I think that's probably the best articulation of of 
also why I would say that there is this unwillingness to dismantle the myth that we are the good guys in Korea. That one thing I found interesting is that our church will be happy to support progressive things that the church is doing in South America, Central America, or in Africa. There's a sense of like, ah, yes, historically we did some very racist things and our missionaries went out and did racist things. And we need to really dismantle that and, and work to change that. But in Korea, everything we did was good. You know, that's, that's, that, that's really deeply ingrained, you know. And, and I sort of came into Korea thinking, yeah, I mean, we did. We really did do some good stuff. And, and there's so many Koreans who are thankful for that, you know. But then I start reading more and more and I start reading about missionaries who were like our, the, pres- the president of our Board of Foreign Missions wrote an entire book about how U.S. needs to support Japanese colonization of Korea because Koreans are so corrupt and so unintelligent that they need Japan, a more modernized country, to modernize them by force. Uh, And then Japan will help open the door to allow missionaries into Korea. And so Japan is Japan. Japanese colonization is going to help, help Christianize Korea, you know, and then other missionaries who were saying, no, no, Japanese colonization is bad because it's an Oriental colonization. What Korea needs is U S colonization. You know, there's one famous, a missionary named Holbert, who who wrote about the U.S. colonization of Philippines, is a great example of how colonization is good. If Korea, if Japan would only leave, so that the U.S. could bring that to Korea, then that would be great. There are many levels <laughs> to that. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. But so, but uh, then yeah. the U.S. Christians, all they all they hear is like, oh, but there's so many thankful Koreans and. Koreans who talk about like, but the the Christians saved us from the communists and that that's the only version of the story they hear, then it's like, oh yeah. And then the constant reactions that North Korea has to our constant domination of policy on the peninsula, they see those reactions and say, ah, yes, see, this is proof that what we did was right. You know, even though what we did was to come in and support the fascists. Mm. (laughs) I feel like we. I want to do a series on this to learn so much because, like, this is such an overview. It's really amazing and really good to be awakened to a lot of it for sure. Right, right. So, what can we do, just sort of regular folks, I guess, to be better world citizens? And what are the ways that you think we can help facilitate a way? toward less conflict in the world you know is i know that that's like sounds such like a high up high in the sky question but (laughs) i guess for people who are not if it's not your job to do this kind of work i feel like being more aware is certainly better the more you know the better you can sort of be in the world but i wonder what things you might say to people yeah um, from anywhere from like know what you can know to (laughs) to express to Donate. I don't know. Yeah, right. right, right. <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I mean, one very specific thing that you can do is to to add your name to the the signature campaign that the NCCK is working on, the Korea Peace Appeal, and so that's that has a website, the endthekoreanwar.net, that anybody could go to and then click the sign here button and then add name and and email and everything. And that's one way to sort of add another voice and to show support for the 
progressives in Korea trying to bring peace in the midst of hostility. And that's a that's a international coalition with around 400 different organizations who have all been working for peace for a long time now, but had also been had been doing it separately up until 2021. And so in the frustration of seeing Moon Jae-in government seeming to do everything right and the U.S. still blocking them, you know, Korean organizations said, we need to get together. And maybe if all our voices are together in this one peace appeal, then it will make more of a difference in, in U.S. policymakers. So adding adding a, a signature to that would be helpful. But I think also, as you, you mentioned, you know, raising your own awareness of, of if you have the energy, and it kind of takes a lot of energy. So I don't, you know, I understand if people are like, ah, that's, you know, to, to search out the stories that are not being told about what happened in Korea and what is the nature of our presence in Korea. You know, especially if you recognize that the U.S., has had a fairly negative presence around the world in all sorts of other places. You know, why is it that we're so willing to believe that in 1945, we magically had this good presence that had, you know, that wasn't at all poisoned by racism, you know, and uh, look into, you know, what were the other parts of that, variables of that situation. And I think, you know, for myself, you know, and maybe people aren't quite confident yet because I feel like I'm just starting to have these conversations with most people to change understandings. But whenever people say like, oh, North Korea is just so evil, you know, to to begin to question, like, is that really what's going on or is there more to this story? You know, like we've we've been told half stories about so many other things around the world. Do we really know everything about what's going on in Korea and in North Korea also? You know, is it that they're crazy and evil or is it that they're faced with a desperate situation and a threat to their right to self-determination you know in the same way that like when black lives matter protests were, were coming on i mean w- when i first started learning about a lot of this that was when ferguson exploded after michael brown mm. was was shot and killed by police and i was watching all the U.S. reaction to the protests saying like, wow, they're really violent. This must mean, you know, and then Republicans saying this must mean they don't understand law and order. And then I was reading this history of protests breaking out, the U.S. responding violently in 1946 in Korea. And then the U.S., you know, commander, the the general of forces in charge of U.S. forces in Korea saying, ah, this is because these Koreans, these Orientals don't understand law and order and we need to teach them, you know, and seeing the direct parallel, like the the same, you know, what if the same way that people are trying to discredit anti-racist movements in the U.S. is, is a similar dynamic in how we've been discrediting any Korean resistance to our policies, including that of the North Korean state. This has been incredibly uh, enlightening. I really, really appreciate hearing from you and making making those connections. Yeah, thanks. So thanks. I think we went over the thirty minute. <laughs> yeah, I goal. think that's. I think that's fine. You know, yeah, I really appreciate it. So hopefully maybe we'll uh, talk to you again and kind of keep up with what's happening. Absolutely. And I just really appreciate, really appreciate it. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you for allowing me this platform. I appreciate it.
Okay. You got questions? We got answers. And today's question is, would you rather hear the good news or the bad news first? There's never any good answer to this. I'm probably a good news first person because it gives me a chance to brace myself or something. Yeah, which is kind of the opposite of how we present the news when we, when we do the news. <laughs> That's true, um, actually. But... You know, it and I and I and I guess for me it depends on the context because it, our example in our show we do the bad news first and then end on the good news so we can be a little cheerful ish on afterwards after hearing all of this stuff. But if it's on a personal level, I would rather hear the good news first and then the bad news second because if it's something, you know, if a family member is coming in and they have bad news. That's usually then that needs to be taken care of and dealt with. You know, somebody's bad news is, you know, I have a positive COVID test or, you know, I, I backed into something in the car and the taillights broken or, or, you know, something shitty or I fell down and I have to go to the ER because my knee's not working anymore and you know if Are that was, all things that have happened <laughs> some of these things have happened right. <laughs> not all of them and not all at once thank god and, good. And, and yeah but yeah i was pulling from my my rolodex of shit that's happened in my life to people so <laughs> so but usually that bad news then requires action or reaction or some kind of punishment for somebody <laughs> i don't know so it's like if you if there's good news that follows that no one's going to pay any attention because we're dealing with whatever the bad news is so i'd rather have the good news first on a personal level and then the bad news last but on a macro level i want it the other way so i guess yes micro level good news first macro level bad news first because if, you know, the world is on fire and there's nothing I could do about it, <laughs> that's fine. And then I want to know that, oh, they rescued the kitten. And it's good. So <laughs> I tend to agree. Yeah, especially with with world news, because it's just it's an overwhelming onslaught all the time. You know, yes. so I agree that having some sense of redeem redemption in the end, yeah. it helps a little. Yes, yes. Yeah, but don't tell me. Well, I mean, I suppose if there was a day where, you know, the, the bad news is I wrecked the car and the good news is I won the lottery, I could take it that way. <laughs> I could take that information in that order. Right. <laughs> and magnitude matters, right? Yes. Yes. The good news has to be really, really, really good to offset the bad news on a micro level. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> this has been, it's been a good show. And I'm Robin Renee. You can find me on Facebook at Robin Renee Fan, on Instagram at Robin Renee Music, and on Twitter at Spirit Rock Sexy. And if you would like to hang out with me on Discord and talk about New Wave and Yacht Rock and other various things, get in touch with me. And I'm, I'm there as Andrew Genus, but write to me at any of the other places and I will connect you. 
And I'm Wendy Sheridan, and you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Wendy Cards, on Twitter at Wendy Designs for now. I don't know how long I'm going to stay on Twitter at this point because I barely, I, I haven't even opened it up in months. And on Etsy at Wendy Cards with a Z. And I'm going to have new stuff up there at some point this month. I promise. <laughs> Yay, new Wendy art. <laughs> <laughs> And please do remember, you can reach out to us on social media at Leftscape and send us your questions. We'd love to hear from you and we might answer a question on an upcoming show. So until next time, be well. Happy May. And keep left. You've been listening to the Leftscape podcast. Sound engineering by Wendy Sheridan. Show notes by Robin Renee. Fake sponsor messages by Ariel Sheridan. Web hosting by InMotion. Remote recording by Squadcast. If you like what you hear, please share it with your friends. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Leftscape. Become a patron of our show for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash Leftscape. Thanks for listening. <laughs>